But one thing we know is women get damaged and hurt through the pornography industry. Well, I'm back with Sean McDowell. We're going to talk about his new book, Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. And uh, Sean, I want to bring you on here. I'm so excited about this book because it's so very timely. And thank you so much for writing it. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, just an overview of what you talk about in the book, and then we'll we'll get down into some of the specific topics because this is really important stuff for our particular cultural moment, I think, especially as Christians. Yeah, so this is a part of the larger True Love Waits campaign that started in 1993 that Richard Ross started. And every few years, they'll have new curriculums, they'll have a new book, a new series. And they approached me about maybe two, three years ago and asked me to be a part of it. And this is an issue I've been thinking about for a long time, being a parent, uh, mm-hmm. having uh, taught high school for a while and still part-time. I've spoken on this, blogged on this, but never put it into a single book. So it's always been in the back of my mind. And then when they came to me, as I thought of it, I was like, this is perfect timing. So essentially, it's a biblical look at, from kind of a worldview approach, sex, love, marriage, and the tougher issues around morality like sex abuse, uh, pornography, living together, the LGBTQ conversation, trying to bring a biblical and timely perspective to those issues. So you work with a lot of youth, um, and and you kind of always have. So you've been really plugged into the mentality of young people regarding just general issues of sexuality. What are you finding, uh, even especially among Christian kids, what's the general mindset toward uh, just sex in general? Does there seem to be um, an awareness of what the Bible teaches or a willingness to want to follow that? Or what do you what do you think uh, is the general place kids are at these days with with this topic? Well, so I teach part time at a at a Christian school, and I ask my students. This is this has been a few years, but I think this maybe captures it. I said to my these are high school seniors at a Christian school. I said, if you are going to sum up what you've learned at a Christian school in your Christian home in a church on sexuality, what would it be? And this girl goes, "Don't have sex; it's bad. Mm. If you do, you'll get AIDS." and die. <laughs> and I thought, this is tragic yeah. that that girl's perspective, now not every kid is thinks they're going to get AIDS. There's not the same scare for that today as there was in generations past. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of kids, their sense is just a biblical view is archaic. It doesn't make sense. They know the Bible says not to, but they don't know why. Mm. So Number one, there's just there's a lack of any positive vision about relationships within the Christian worldview. But I also think they find the perspective of the culture kind of compelling because mm-hmm. they want to be loving. They want to treat people equally. They want people to be happy. So there's just this tension with at least many Christian kids feel like, you know what, I want to live a biblical worldview. I kind of want to do what my parents tell me, but it just doesn't make sense. I don't know why. And it's certainly not compelling to them what the biblical perspective is. 
I think you make such a good point there because it seems like, especially for the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, there's just been a lot of no's. It's been kind of surrounding the no and what you can't do. And like you mentioned, you know, if, if you do this, this will happen. And I wonder if, do you think that as kids grow up in church and in youth group and they get such a negative presentation of issues regarding sex and, and all of the don'ts, and then if you do this will happen, and then do, do you think there's any connection between that and just what seems to be unprecedented numbers of even uh, young adults who would call themselves Christians who don't see anything wrong with living together before they get married or, or having sex before they get married? Do you think there's any connection there, I wonder? I think the heart of that is we've never taught the why behind the what for this generation. So if you say don't do this but without saying why, then kids will maybe largely follow it for a while. But when the temptation gets big, when they're lonely, when their worldview gets challenged, that's not going to last. So I was speaking with my dad shortly before the whole COVID quarantine, and we were doing a weekend conference together all on the topic of relationships and sexuality. And this kid came up to me, this mom, he was probably a younger teenager. And he said, you know, I just want to thank you for not just tell me why pornography, not tell me that pornography is wrong, but why it's wrong. I never knew. People mm. just told me don't do it. But now I understand God's design and why it's best for me and best for others. I thought, gosh, there's so many kids growing up who are just told don't look at it. It's bad. Not given a positive vision. So either they just continue to call themselves a Christian and just don't live out that sexual ethic, or many of them just say, you know what, if this Christian sexual ethic doesn't make sense, why am I even a Christian? And they'll walk away from their faith. Yeah. So I think the lack of explaining why is just gutting any kids living this out with confidence and consistency. In the promotional materials for your book, it's, it's, there's a really powerful paragraph here. It says, the love that the world tells us to pursue is all about self. And this is so important because this is such a big message in culture right now. It's uh, something that is dominating the Amazon bestseller list and the New York Times bestseller list, this idea of happiness being the ultimate goal and uh, pursuing just that self and that sense of self and follow your heart, live out your dreams. Um, and, and you're asking the question, but what is the Christian worldview on love? Because when we follow Jesus, we realize that he invites us to reorient the focus of our lives. And and so tell us a little bit about this title, Chasing Love, because I, I think there's something there that's answering uh, just this this other message that seems to be in our faces all the time coming from from popular culture. What's interesting about the title is actually the publisher came up with the title and they said, here's what we want to call the next wave of True Love Wait. So Lifeway is doing the curriculum and Bradman Holman is doing the book. So they gave me the title. And the more I thought about it, I think when we hear chasing love, we think, how do we chase after and find love? So the assumption is all of us are chasing after it. How do we do this well? And as I thought about it and I prayed about it, I thought, you know what? Rather than chasing love for myself to feel good and authenticate myself, actually the Christian worldview says chase love seeking God and seeking others first. Mm. And then all these things will be added unto you. So I kind of tried to flip the narrative on its head and said, look, if you're chasing after this for yourself, you're going to end up empty when it's all said and done. You're never have a meaningful, lasting relationship and marriage. 
But if you ask first, what does it mean to love God? And what does it mean to love other people, whether married or single? That's going to transform how we even approach this conversation. So really, I'm hooking young people because they're thinking, yeah, I'm kind of looking for love. So give me some tips how to find the right person or be the right person. Then I open up very quickly and go, no, actually, if you're in this for yourself, you're going to end up being empty. Mm. You've got to find out what is your life, your bigger life about. So I'm kind of framing it for students saying the question of how you approach marriage and love and sex is a smaller sub point of how you approach your entire life. Mm. So if your life is about loving God and loving other people, then your marriage, if you get married or your singleness will reflect that. So let's ask the question first, what does it mean to love God and love other people before we look inward? That's good. And you mentioned singleness because I think this is such it's such a big topic right now. Lots of older, uh, well, when I say older, I mean not like super young, teenage, <laughs> young adult women are choosing to not marry. I mean, girls, yeah. it used to be girls would grow up and you'd dream of getting married. And now it seems like like that's just not happening all the time. Pe- people aren't really thinking about getting married. I think um, you would probably know this better than I would about statistics, but is is marriage kind of, people are, not as many people are getting married. Is that is that fair to say or... Um, yes. So I still think most people in America aspire to get married someday. Okay. Most would say they want to get married, but people are getting married later mm. and then they're having kids later or they're not having kids. So gotcha. as a whole, I don't think our culture's lost this commitment to marriage, but there's an increasing number of people, the way you describe it saying, you know what, I'm content being single or content being single longer than generations in the past. So I think that's the important piece is if you look back at certain what are called sexual purity campaigns in the past, one of the things that almost nobody ever talked about was singleness. Mm -hmm. The assumption was, and prepping for this book, I read, I mean, hundreds of articles, studies. I got dozens of books by Christians, non-Christians, kind of critiquing this purity movement. And one of the things I found is there was little if no discussion about singleness, Well, number one, that's not biblical. If you read 1 Corinthians 7 and you read Matthew 19, both singleness and marriage are equal, beautiful ways of honoring and serving the Lord. Mm -hmm. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, marriage has its benefits, but it has its challenges. Singleness has its benefits. It has its challenges. In fact, Paul is kind of like, I wish more of you, if not all of you, were single. And there's a little hyperbole there, but we've missed that. Part of purity movements in the past was if you just do certain things right now, then God will reward you with Mm. that spouse. And people might not have used these words, but they basically meant if you keep yourself sexually faithful now, then God will bring this partner and you will have endless sexual bliss for the rest of your life. And then Mm -hmm. what happened? Then people didn't find that spouse. And then they look back and question their faith. Or they find their spouse and marriage and sex was harder than they thought it might be. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking a step back, just looking at scripture saying, wait a minute, singleness is good and it's beautiful and it's biblical. How do we hold up singleness and marriage as ways of honoring the Lord? And one little way I did this to flip the narrative is in the book, The First Third, is all about like the backdrop for how we approach sexuality from a biblical standpoint. The middle third is where I look at sex, singleness, and marriage. 
Now, I first talk about defining what is the purpose of sex, and then I talk about singleness, and then I talk about marriage. Why? Because all the kids reading this are single right now, and they'll be married someday. <laughs> and second, it was a way of flipping the, mar- uh, the script because usually it was, well, sex and marriage, and people didn't even talk about singleness. Mm-hmm. So I put singleness first to kind of highlight that and dispel some of the myths. And I'll tell you, Lisa, I've had probably three or four singles read it just to give me feedback in the manuscript. And one lady was in tears. She's like, I, why do more people not talk about this? And she wow. was single. I was like, this is beautiful. And we've got to get this message to the church. So I'm married. You're married. It's easy mm-hmm. for us to not talk about this. Yeah. But there's a lot of single people wondering where do we fit within the church and casting a vision for that starts when our kids are younger. Well, that's a very interesting point because uh, I got married at 28, which back then was like very late. <laughs> now that's yeah. like it would be considered young now. But I remember as a single person feeling that way, like I didn't have a place mm. to fit in and I felt like I didn't thrive very well because I was single. And I wonder if, you know, I would have had a better foundation of understanding that if I could have embraced it a little more and, and uh, found the joy of that, uh, actually. So I appreciate that you're doing that. And you, you brought up purity culture. And I want to talk about purity culture because uh, my memories, you know, it's really everybody's critiquing purity culture right now. There's just a ton of articles. And I think even a few months ago, there was just this wave of articles that were kind of dunking on purity culture. And and I even remember being in high school and all my friends were getting purity rings and there there were all these big pushes for abstinence and in, you know, all the Bible camps you'd go to that that was seemed to be a big topic that they would talk about. And you're right, it was it was definitely presented like if you do this if you wait until you're married you know it's just going to be amazing and everything's going to be wonderful and then i think we're seeing some of the fallout not that it's wrong to teach kids to be abstinent of course but i think we we do see some of the fallout and interestingly just about a year ago or so maybe a couple years ago i read nadia boltz weber's book shameless on sexuality mm-hmm. and she's uh you know kind of a a big figure in the progressive movement and She's arguing that we need an entirely new sexual ethic. She says, you know, we don't just need a few tweaks. We need to burn it to the ground and start over. And in the book, she argues for um, just really anti-biblical sexual ethics, where essentially any kind of sexual union between two people can be considered holy, whether they're married or not or, or whatever. And one of the big complaints that she had was this purity culture that made all these promises and didn't deliver. And so um, when people like her and others who are maybe trying to change the sexual ethics of the church come along, you know, they're looking at some of these maybe uh, promises that failed, and they're saying, well, we need to change the sexual ethic. But it seems like what you're saying, and I would agree with you, we're saying, no, we don't We don't need to change what the Bible says about sex, but we need to somehow get back to the beauty of the yes, rather than just the, the don'ts and then these kind of far-off promises. Comment a little bit more, if you would, about purity culture and what you see, you know, the good parts. What can we give to the next generation now with what we've learned from purity culture in the 90s and 2000s or whenever um, that was? What can we give to the next generation that focuses maybe more on the beauty of God's original design? 
So when I look at critiques of purity culture, there's two key points that I see. Some of the failures are in people not teaching consistently what a biblical sexual ethic is. That's a part of it. So when I see that, I go, okay, the fault might be that we didn't accurately represent the biblical worldview. But that's different than saying, like, say, Nadia Bowles Weber seems to say, well, purity culture didn't work, so let's throw out the entire historic Christian view of sexuality. Right. Well, if Jesus is God and we have his words, then I'm going to go with what Jesus says about it. So the problem is with certain teachings within purity culture, not what a biblical sexual ethic actually is. Yeah. That would be my difference with her. Now, my dad, interestingly enough, one of the things I enjoyed about this uh, project for me is in the 1980s, my dad led the very first international or global sexual purity campaign. They didn't really call it sexual purity. It was called the Why Wait campaign. And it was kind of the 80s into the early 90s before True Love Waits. And oh. there, I mean, this is some of the technology made this possible, but there were video series and events and he was traveling with Petra and he was doing all these really cool events. And one of the things my dad would say that I really agree with him on is he would say, God's commandments are for our good. I mean, over and over and over again, yeah. he would say, look, look in Deuteronomy 10, when Moses is given the commandments, he says, love Lord God, your heart, your soul, your mind, strength, and follow these commandments I'm giving you for your good. Psalms, what is it? Psalms 119, when David says, I love the law of the Lord. Now he failed to live it, but he knew that it was meant for his good. So really at the heart of this is the question, is God good mm. and can we trust his commands? And I think increasingly some progressive Christians say, actually, let's throw the whole thing out. Mm -hmm. um, I think we know a little bit better than maybe what the scriptures say. And there I'm going to go, uh, time out. No, we might not fully understand it, but the question is, can we trust God's character? But let's make sure we are teaching what scripture actually says and not add some legalistic things on top of it yeah. or metaphors. And I think that's what purity culture did. One of the reasons people, I think the church respond to purity cultures, especially in the nineties, you have this wave of just pornography that's hitting and Christian parents and youth pastors and teachers are looking for a formula that says, if I give my kid this ring, if I take him to this event, if they just make this promise, then they will be sexually pure and they can resist the culture. Mm. And it didn't happen because it was just too simplistic and formulaic. Mm. Now, the result is to throw all that out. And I want to say no. For example, take a purity ring. I don't talk about that or promote this in the book. But there's a difference between a kid feeling like I have to do this because my parents are pressuring me and because of peer pressure and a kid saying, you know what, I want to honor the Lord with my body and I want to wear this ring as a promise. If a kid makes that decision and understands what they're doing, it's not a guarantee, but that could be a wise decision for a young person to make. But none of those nuances were actually done in purity culture. So mm. I think it was the sexual prosperity gospel. I think it was too formulaic. Mm. I think partly what Natty Boltz-Weber is responding to is there kind of was a lot of shaming that took place. Yeah. If you had sex one time, you've been tainted forever and you can never go back. I think mm. we did make that a greater sin than other sins. 
So sometimes yeah. we'd ask people, how are you doing? And that would be reduced to like, how are you doing in the area of sexuality <laughs> and not other issues? So when I look at some people who've critiqued purity culture, I think sometimes they make fair critiques, but I differ with their solution because ultimately I think the scriptures are true. God is good and his design is best for us. And I think too, some of this new sexual ethic that people like Nadia Boltz-Weber and some in the progressive church are arguing for is heavily influenced by this modern Western sexual ethic. And so if you if you wanted to, I know in your book you kind of summarize the, the Western sexual ethic and how that has influenced particularly American Christianity. Talk about that a little bit. Um, what is that modern Western sexual ethic and how, how has the church been sort of influenced and in maybe even a little bit infiltrated by by that. So let me give an example. And this is one of the early examples I use in the book. I was speaking to a group of Christian high school students and I went to the board and I wrote, who is truly free? I said, describe for me the person who's truly free. And what I meant by that is not politically free, but what does it mean to be a person who's free? And the students talked about themselves amongst themselves, came back to me and they said, the free person is someone who can do whatever they want mm without restraint. I said, okay, paint a picture of what that looks like. And they talked amongst themselves. They came back and they said, well, I guess it'd be a person alone on an island where nobody could prevent them from doing anything they want. They'd be totally free. I said, okay, now if we add God to this picture, does it change anything about how we understand freedom? And they talked amongst themselves, came back, and one student said, well, if God exists, now freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint, but now there's consequences. Now, just think about that. In their minds, all God adds to the matrix of what it means to be free is consequences, maybe judgment in the next life and guilt in this life. Can we see why that would not be a compelling ethic or compelling sexual ethic mm -hmm. for young people? So to cut to the chase, over the hour with these students, I helped them see that there's freedom from, which they understood lacking restraint, but there's also freedom for. Like if I have a smartphone, one, I have to understand what it was made for, use it accordingly, and then it's free. It doesn't make waffles. It's not a weapon. It's not a doorstop. Well, interestingly, the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God created. God is a creator. So we have been made for something. The Bible says there's a purpose for language, a purpose for nations, a purpose for marriage, a purpose for families, and there's a purpose for sex. So we are only free when we understand what we're made for and live accordingly to God's design. That's at the heart of biblical freedom. So I said to these students, I said, according to the Bible, We've been made to be in a relationship with God and relationship with other people. I said, you agree? They said, yes. I said, that means the least free person is somebody who's alone on an island without wow. another person. And it was like the lights went on. They didn't even see it. Mm. So when we start reading Bible verses or start talking about commands for sexuality or analyze songs Underneath this is an entirely different secular worldview about freedom, what it means to be human, the nature of relationships underlying this entire discussion. So the whole first third of the book is trying to like strip away 
these faulty cultural ideas that young people have about the definition of love. So mm. love is just doing whatever feels right to you. And you have to affirm however I feel about myself and however I define myself. If not, you're not loving. Right. So we've got to take students back and say, what actually is freedom? What actually is love? Why does God give us certain commandments? Then we can start to talk about what those commandments are and practical ideas to live it out. But in the church, we often just jump to those commandments. We tell kids how to live out sexual purity, where deep within their hearts, they actually have embraced a non-biblical view mm -hmm. of sexuality and relationships. Well, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Sean McDowell today, and we'll be right back in with that in just a moment. But I wanna tell you about a couple of opportunities for the young people in your lives. So first, let's talk about the state of modern theology. According to studies, 68% of American churchgoers agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. 41% think that gender is a matter of choice, and 49% think that religion is a matter of personal opinion rather than one of objective truth. So this is such an important time in history to really invest in the young people in our lives. And so a couple of ways we can do that is if there's a high school student in your life, I want to recommend Impact 360's Immersion Experience. It's like a two week summer camp where they get training in apologetics and theology. They learn what they believe and why they believe it, but then they get to apply that knowledge with real life fun excursions. So this is just not your typical summer camp. It's much, much more. You can go to impact360.org for more information. If there is a young person in your life who's a little bit older than high school, I want to commend to you Southern Evangelical Seminary. This is the seminary that helped reconstruct my faith when I was going through a crisis of faith in a time of really dark doubt. So SES understands that to truly be salt and light in our modern day and to effectively engage this post-Christian culture, Believers need to have a deeply integrated understanding of how three things, theology, philosophy, and apologetics work together. And this equips them to proclaim the gospel, which has to do with theology, engage culture, which has to do with philosophy, and defend the truth, which is apologetics. You can go to ses.edu for more information. I wonder too if there's not confusion over the word purity, because uh, just in some of the books I've read, it does seem like uh, particularly in the progressive paradigm, purity has almost become this bad word. Like purity is some kind of unattainable standard or it's, it's just something that we use to pressure people into doing what we want them to do or into not doing what we don't want them to do. What is the biblical definition of purity as it relates to sex? Sexual purity, according to scripture and, the, and, and according to God's word, what is that that we're, that we're advocating for when we talk about sexual purity with young people? So I haven't totally abandoned the word purity because scripture calls us to have thoughts that are loving and holy and just and pure. Mm -hmm. You see that Paul says that, like I think it's Philippians 4, 8, he makes that reference. So we are called to avoid sexual immorality and to have a kind of purity. But you're right, there's a whole lot of cultural baggage that comes with that that confuses people. So I've heard people talk about like sexual integrity. That's not a term that I've used, but I actually really like that term. 
I will talk more about God's design for sex and a biblical standard for sex when I'm talking with students than actually the term purity. Mm -hmm. Typically, people define purity as like uh, lacking anything that would make something impure. So they'll define it negatively. Mm. But I actually think sexual purity is when someone lives according to their design. If somebody is sexually pure in body and in mind, in soul, they're living according to God's design for love, sex, and marriage. That's actually what sexual purity would biblically mean, which raises the question, what does it mean to love God with your body? What does it mean to love God with your soul? And so I actually, this is one area I've adapted well. I th- as well. I think Protestants in the past have talked a lot about loving God with our minds and with our thinking and don't lust, but not talked about what it means to love God with our bodies. Our Catholic friends have done a much better job of talking about the theology of the body. So when I talk about purity, I say being sexually pure is living how God wants you to live. This means loving him with your body and loving him with your soul. It's both. So I think that's a more biblical understanding of what purity is. You recently wrote an article that has a a kind of a provocative title, and I'm not sure how um, widely this was. It seems like the kind of post that would get, you know, circulated fairly widely. So you can tell us what the responses were like. But the title is, Was Jesus a Sexual Progressive? And of course, that, that got my attention. And this was such a great article where you talk about Jesus' view of sexuality. So I want to talk about this a little bit. You give two examples of where Jesus actually addresses uh, human sexuality because, you know, you'll hear people say, well, Jesus wasn't all that concerned about uh, about mm. sex, and particularly he didn't really talk about homosexuality, so we don't need to worry about that so much, you know. But, but you're really making the case here that this was important to Jesus, what we do with our bodies um, sexually. And so talk, talk a little bit about, you know, was Jesus a sexual progressive? Yeah, I knew that title was at least needless to say, mildly provocative and could be considered clickbait, but I think there's some substance behind it and oh, it's a yeah. fair question. I don't think it's, I don't think it's clickbait, yeah. That, that's always the trick that we have. Like, but, yeah. but people will say, you know, Jesus was just, he was about love. Like love trumps the law. This is kind of a progressive move. So I'm asking the question, when it came to issues of sexuality, is Jesus more conservative? Or is he more liberal than his contemporaries? And there's two examples. One in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus is defining adultery. And he says it's not just the physical act of sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse. It's actually lusting after a woman in your heart. So you could say he makes a stricter commandment here, Mm. not a looser commandment. So that was one example. The other one is in Matthew 19 where Jesus is asked uh, about marriage. Can a man divorce his wife? And they kind of want to know, is he part of the school of Hillel, which was more liberal, that says a man can divorce his wife for cooking a bad meal, or the uh, or more the group of Shammai that was more conservative? And Jesus basically says, look, I'm not picking schools. I'm going back to the beginning. 
let's look at God's original intent for marriage. He quotes Genesis 1 and he quotes Genesis 2, that God meant marriage to be one man and one woman who become one flesh for one lifetime. So Jesus is basically saying Moses might have allowed because of our human stubbornness, but that was never the way God intended it to be. So on the definition of marriage and the reasons for divorce, Jesus goes more strict than he does more liberal. So I don't see precedent to believe that Jesus becomes is really this sexual progressive where love trumps all. I had a, a pastor say to me one time, he goes, you know, Jesus said, love your neighbor. And so if we look at different sexual relationships, we ought to embrace love. And I said, you're right. But Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. <laughs> and yeah. Jesus was pretty clear when it came to issues of sexuality. Mm -hmm. So I don't buy that he goes this progressive direction. Now, with that said, is Jesus gracious? Is Jesus merciful? Oh, my goodness. Nobody who's ever lived shows more compassion and tenderness for those who are hurting. But he does not adopt a progressive view of sexuality. I'm so glad you brought up the example of the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about adultery, because very often people will try and argue that Jesus was being progressive in a sense, in that by, by basically rejecting what the Old Testament says, you've heard it said, but I say, and then he basically refutes the Old Testament position. But I, I think you're rightly bringing out that not only was he affirming the Old Testament position on sexuality, but he was actually making it more difficult to, to accomplish or to attain, which of course shows us our own sinfulness and our need for him and his mm. sacrifice on the cross uh, in our place. Um, so there are so many damaging distortions of sex. I mean, just in our culture with the internet and with the media and all of these different streaming platforms. I mean, it just seems like it's such an uphill battle just with, with around every corner, especially for young people who are seeing a lot of this for the first time. And this is what they see on Netflix is going to f help form their view of sex. And so some of these things are uh, damaging distortions of sex and love and relationships. And a lot of Christians, especially Christian young people, are accepting these distortions. And so Talk about some of these damaging distortions of sex and how are they tearing us down? How are they uh, actually damaging the views of, of young Christians who are still being formed in their views on these things? Hmm. I think one damaging view is that sex is everything. It means everything. And I think you see this in the wider culture. Sometimes it's in every song. It's in every movie. It's in every you know TikTok videos like crazy. You name it. And we also saw that a little bit in purity culture, that just sex is the defining issue. So I think that's mm -hmm. one extreme to take too far. But it's also another extreme to say that sex really doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. At the heart of the sexual revolution was to kind of demystify sex and say it's just a biological phenomena like drinking a glass of water. It doesn't mean anything. It's not sacred. Mm -hmm. And I think that's false. And our hearts know that. Number one, the Me Too campaign, it's not just people being abused verbally or physically. Yeah. There's something about being abused sexually that violates somebody in a deep, just personal, hurtful fashion. So the Me Too movement shows a lie to that. 
But I'll give you another example I put in the book is from, I think it was a 2016 movie, Passengers. And this is a movie with Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence. And actually haven't seen the movie, but I know the theme of it is they're on some ship and they wake up early, like 99 years into this journey. And it's just, it's just the two of them. Well, interestingly enough, there is a sex scene in that movie between the two of them. And at the time, it was the first scene like that that Jennifer Lawrence had done. Okay, so it's kind of a new scene for her. And I saw this interview where Chris Pratt was being interviewed and he goes, hey, what's it like to do a scene like this and to kind of be the man to care for the woman who's on set? And first off, the guy didn't realize you're not supposed to ask the question that way because we've gotten rid of men and women in our yeah. culture. But I digress. Right. Um, and Chris Pratt is really uncomfortable. You can just tell. And he's like an awesome actor. But he's like, um, I make sure she's OK. I check people on the set. And then he like moves on. And I heard that interview. I thought, isn't that interesting? Why does he ask him about that scene? Mm -hmm. Why not another scene? He asks him about that scene because we know there's something different yeah. where you make yourself intimate and vulnerable. That puts a lie to the claim that sex is not a big deal. So then I did a little more research and I found an article where Jennifer Lawrence was interviewed about this. And I'll tell you, I get almost teary-eyed thinking about it because she she says, this was the most vulnerable I've ever felt in my life. So the night before the scene, I called my mom and I said, mom, just tell me everything is going to be okay. Oh. It's like the voice of this little girl coming out, knowing that there's something in her heart telling her she shouldn't do this. Yeah, yeah. And then she gets herself drunk for one scene in the movie. Yeah. Guess which scene it was? Obviously, it was that scene. Yeah. So one of the lies our culture says is sex is not a big deal. Just hook up, move on. What you do now won't affect you later. And the reality is it does. Sex yeah. is sacred. It's the one act we do that brings another human being into existence. Yeah. So I don't want to overdo that, but I, I certainly don't want to underdo it as our culture does as well. That one example of it, and I could give other ones if you want me to, but that's a big one that I think our culture really misses. That That is really powerful. I remember hearing you talk about that at the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, I guess two or three years mm -hmm. ago, you, you brought that out. That's and right. That, that was a really powerful point. Um, yet tell, give us another one if you've, if you've got one, uh, just another damaging distortion, because that's so important. I think so many young people, especially young girls, are buying into the lie that sex is just no big deal. It's just, it's, you know, you just, you just do it and move on. It's not really going to affect you emotionally. I mean, even chemically, we know scientifically, the chemicals that are released, especially in a woman's body, are similar to the, the hormones that are released when you nurse a baby that bond you to the baby. Right. I, my, my secular Buddhist midwife told me that when I was pregnant <laughs> with my son. I mean, this is, she's not even coming from a Christian sexual ethic, but she's saying, you know, sex is not just no big deal. It actually is a big deal chemically and scientifically. So what would be another uh, damaging distortion that you see that's really affecting uh, us negatively as a people? Yeah, I think one of the lies is that you can give somebody your body and it doesn't affect your soul. Mm -hmm. So the nature of a hookup is you just get together with somebody from making out and sex, but you're just friends and then you move on. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a release or it's just fun. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is is that we are body 
and we are soul. What we do with our body affects our soul. And what we do with our soul affects our bodies. So there's a reason why girls especially will feel like, oh, I'm just having sex for fun. But then when they wake up, there's a deep sense of loneliness, Mm. a sense of yearning. You want to be held. You want to be committed to. So it's a lie in our culture says you can separate your body from your soul. So I had a, a, a guy probably 10 years younger than I am and not a believer. And uh, he was telling me about all these girls that he's hooking up with. And I just asked him, I was like, do you ever feel guilty? And he's like, no, it's not a big deal. We just, we just have sex. It's fun. And I remember thinking like, how do I approach this conversation for him to realize that he doesn't actually believe that? So I thought about a while and I can't remember. It might've been four or five, six weeks later. I saw him and said, Hey, I got a, I got a question for you. I said, do you think a handshake means something? He's like, of course. I said, do you think a kiss on the cheek means something? He goes, yes. I said, do you think a slap on the face means something? He says, yes. I said, so if a handshake and a kiss on the cheek and a slap on the face mean something within themselves, how can sex, which you're the most intimate with your body with another person, not mean anything? Mm. And it was like, he was literally speechless. I'm not pretending that I always have these moments of like giving people, I don't want to communicate that to the audience, but it was one of those moments where he was just looking at me and he kind of smirked and was like, I see your point. You see, the culture was like, just use your body, have sex. It's fun. It doesn't mean anything. And he had bought that lie. And then when he reflected on it, we know we communicate with our bodies. Mm -hmm. Look, if you go buy a used car and the salesman, you know, shakes your hand and looks you in the eye, but he sold you a lemon. He lied to you with his body. We can communicate just with our bodies. And so this generation is told it doesn't mean anything. And yet we know when you look at somebody and put your hand out, when you go with this, with your fist, Mm -hmm. when you wink at somebody, you're communicating something. So how can sex the most intimate way or one of the most intimate ways People can be connected, not mean something. Yeah. So it's a lie in our culture that you can just separate your body from your whole person and having it affect your soul. It's so true. And even in popular media, just regular TV shows, it just seems like every time you turn around or you turn on a show, especially the way that they'll model how you know they're they're portraying women should be where it's maybe a one night stand and she's the one saying oh yeah i'm you know you you got to go i've got my life to live and she's not you know in, engaged emotionally at all and it's the guy that's like oh i don't want to leave or you know it just seems like this is everywhere right. and it's really just such a lie and it's lying to everyone but just as a as a female i see the lies that are being basically sent to my daughter where it, for her to consider herself a strong, independent woman, she has to view sex this way, according to popular media. And it really is just such a lie. And I think you brought up a couple of really good examples that demonstrate that really deep down inside, we all know this. I think everyone, you actually have to sort of separate yourself from your emotional instincts to believe the lies, I think, that are in so much of our culture. And just very quickly, I, I, I want to touch on the issue of pornography, because I was, um, I heard your dad speak at the SES conference a couple years ago about pornography, and you could have heard a pin drop in that room. I don't know if you were there or not, 
But it was, I mean, it, like everybody was just like this as he's speaking with some of the statistics and some of just, uh, just how, not only just how prevalent this is, but even among church leaders and pastors and just the, the ages of kids when they first see pornography, just speak to, to just this problem of pornography for a moment. And, um, and then I want to get into, um, talking to people who have sexual brokenness in their lives and, and what kind mm. of encouragement you would offer them. But but comment for a moment just about the problem of pornography, because I think we're seeing even, even secular people, I've seen several different organizations kind of spring up to basically say, look, pornography is bad for you, and, and it's bad for the world, and here's why. Um, what's the Christian perspective on this, and how can, we, how can we approach this topic? I know it's a huge topic, but um, just very quickly, how can Christians approach the idea of pornography protect our kids. Um, speak to that if you would. Here's where I think we see the hypocrisy in our culture come full swing. I was working through the group of high school students, The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. And there's a famous line in there where he says something effect of, you know, people castrate the young man and then say, hey, go be fruitful. Mm. In other words, he says people in our culture say there's no such thing as objective honor but then they're surprised when people are cowards. <laughs> like yeah. you can't have it both ways. There's this me too movement that's going on that says respect women, don't take advantage of people. And yet where do we see it portrayed women most beaten, taken mm. advantage of? It's in pornography, it's in pornography. And I don't hear anybody or not anybody, there is a movement like you said of governors and lawyers and other thinkers uh, pushing against pornography in ways they did in the past. In fact, the cover story of Time about three, four years ago was about this movement. But we don't. I don't hear the outcry to match the amount of pornography people are watching yeah. and studies showing 60, 70, 80% include physical aggression against women. Yeah. And then we think it doesn't affect the way people live. I mean, it's absurd. Now, it's one thing for adults but it's another thing for young people, 12, 15, 17 years old, who have not developed their sexual scripts, so mm. to speak. The way I explain to students, I'll say, look, you get in an elevator, you have a script about how you behave in an elevator. You're not loud, you don't talk, you face the front and there's spacing. Like you act in an elevator different than a library, different than you do when you're walking down the street, different in a football game. We have scripts that we learn just from observing the world. Where the number one place, this entire generation is developing their script about relationships is through pornography. And it's not about married couples with kids that are faithful and right. loving and gracious to each other. It gives the script that the most exciting, fulfilling sex is a one night stand without a relationship. I mean, pornography literally gives the opposite message that the scripture gives about commitment, about love about fidelity, and kids are adopting this, whether they realize it or not, pornography teaches them mm -hmm. to view the world in a certain way. So I'll tell you, Lisa, just uh, recently, I was speaking at a big teacher's convention, and one, um, not it, she wasn't a teacher, she was a counselor at a Christian school, and she told me, she said, you know, there's one student in our school, a young man, who in a certain grade class, did not look at pornography and word got around that all the girls knew that and respected that. 
because basically all the other boys were looking at it. Wow. Man. Now that's her pers- her perspective and that's her experience. I'm not going to quite universalize that. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you that the studies show the amount of young people, Christians and non-Christians looking at pornography and how it's shaping their relationships, their lack of self-control, their view of women, their inability to just like have delayed gratification mm-hmm. is disastrous. Yeah. It's disastrous. So I have a whole chapter on this towards the end because I start with what we're for and then go against kind of corruptions of a biblical view. And I'm kind of towing a line from trying to wake students up and shake them and go, this matters without shaming them. That's a hard way to approach this. So I had one one girl emailed me and I don't get into email exchanges quite obviously with girls, even if I'm trying to help for Mm -hmm. obvious reasons. But I emailed this girl back. She sent this long email onto my site and just said, I'm wrestling pornography. I don't want, I don't know what to do. And I said, you know what? I'm not able to get in conversation. I have someone who will help. And I copied this person. I said, I just want you to know that God loves you. Two or three years later, I heard from back, back from her. And she said, that wrecked me. Wow. I felt so dirty. I felt like nobody could love me. I haven't looked at it sense. Wow. I wow. thought that's the message we have to get to this generation, yeah. that pornography will wreck your self-image. It'll wreck the way you treat people. It turns people into objects you use rather than people you love. Yeah. And the solution is grace and God's love and a biblical view of sexuality brings real freedom. That's great. Um, so I want to put you on the spot here, if it's okay. Um, I'd love to get your response to, not to just pick on Nadia Boltz-Weber, but she did write a whole book on sexuality, arguing for this alternative sexual ethics. So it's, you know, I think it's fair game when somebody writes a book and puts it out into the world. Sure. In the book and in a subsequent promotional video for the book, um, she argues for the idea of what she's calling ethically sourced pornography. And she said that in a video. And then in her book, she says that she thinks for even for Christian people, uh, adults, uh, pornography is okay if it's in moderation, so it doesn't become an addiction, and if it's ethically sourced, uh, whatever that means. So I'd, I would love to get your response to to what she's saying that, you know, if you're a mature Christian okay. believer, um, ethically sourced porn in moderation is okay. What What's your response to that? I think it's nonsense. I think it's nonsense on two levels. If you say ethically sourced, now if I'm wrong about this, somebody can correct me and let me know. But one thing we know is women get damaged and hurt through the pornography industry. I actually did quite a bit of research on this and included some stories into my book. And I was researching this stuff, telling my wife about it. I'm like, oh, I I don't even want to know this stuff. Like it was starting to bother me just to research it. And I don't think it's possible to ethically source pornography. Somebody is going to get hurt. Even all these companies that have said they've done that, stories leak out and say, nope, I was pressured into this. I got a sexually transmitted disease. And even the fact in pornography itself that you're having sex with people, not your spouse, performing for others mm-hmm. is violating violating the biblical standard of what sexuality is supposed to be in the first place. Yeah. And then second, I mean, the Bible is clear from Genesis to the end that God designed sex to be between one man and one woman who become one flesh for a lifetime. 
And Jesus includes lust into the calculus of committing adultery. There is no point in having pornography if you're not lusting against somebody else. There's no point. I can't even make up a point. So I don't buy either one of those, that it's fine for a Christian to look at this and that it's ethically sourced. I'm I'm not convinced. And I actually think that's a damaging message to people. Rather than saying, have self-control, learn to cultivate a loving relationship with your spouse, you're opening up the door to bringing in a third, a fourth, a fifth party into the marriage bed, which Hebrews 13, 4 says, keep sacred. You are cracking open the door to something. And you know what the studies even show? is that people who look at pornography in their marriage, it doesn't improve their sex life. Over time, it actually makes it worse because you become less and less satisfied with your spouse Mm -hmm. because you're looking at images that are doctored. Mm -hmm. So in theory, I've heard other thinkers say this and conservatives that I respect and care about, not Christians that I know of who say, hey, look at a little pornography, just like you can have a drink of alcohol. Well, alcohol by its definition is not bad. It's wrong when you abuse it. Mm -hmm. Pornography by definition is wrong and it's outside of God's standards. So whether you intend to have self-control is irrelevant to how pornography itself is used. Well, this is why your book is so important and so timely for right now. Um, I want to close out here with some encouragement for people because all of us in one way or another are are broken sexually in, in one way or another. And I'm sure there are people listening who have uh, made mistakes. They, they have fallen into sexual sin and they're just racked with guilt or they don't know what to do about it. Maybe they're trapped in a cycle of, um, sexual addiction of one sort or another, whether it's pornography or, um, or, or just actual sexual addiction. Um, so does sexual sin place someone out of God's reach of forgiveness. And and what would you say to somebody who's listening to this who is coming from that perspective of, I just, I, I've, I've messed up, what do I do? First thing I would say is I'll oftentimes have people say to me, they're like, I can't believe I did this. God and other people could not love me if they knew what I've done. And I always respond by saying, man, I hurt for you that you believe that because that is not true. That is a lie, to be frank, from the pit of hell. What makes Christianity unique is the grace of God. I mean, just read the stories of Jesus. I love the story of the prodigal son. I mean, we miss this, but that son totally dishonored his father in an honor-shame society and went out engaged in wild living. And what did the father do? I envision him opening up the curtains every day, looking out and just thinking, maybe today is the day my son will come home. That's the love of the father. Look at the kindness that Jesus showed to the woman in John 4, the Samaritan woman who had multiple wives. He doesn't say, shame on you. Why didn't you figure it out after three? Mm. I mean, my goodness, how many times do I have to tell you? What's a matter? Like, you don't even sense that in Jesus. He speaks truth but he shows grace and he shows kindness and he shows mercy and it changes our life. 
that's what makes Christianity different is there is a heavenly father who says, I love you and I bear your shame for you. If I could give one example, Lisa, that I put in the book because I just haven't heard a lot of people talk about it this way is what's very interesting is, you know, Jesus on the cross, one thing we know about him is he was stripped completely naked. When people were crucified, they were stripped bare. So no part of the body was protected and you would be absolutely humiliated publicly for everybody to see. Well, you go back to the garden. When they sin, they covered themselves up to hide their shame. That's the first Adam. Fast forward to the second Adam. What does Jesus do? He's the only one who didn't sin, but he uncovers himself to bear our shame. That's the power of the cross. That's what Jesus meant when he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So if anybody's listening, if it's the issue of abortion, the issue of homosexuality, the issue of pornography, my goodness, you have a loving heavenly father who looks inside and says, you are my beloved child and I forgive you. And I want you to experience the freedom that comes from confessing your sin and then knowing that you're forgiven, that's the greatest freedom in the world. So please don't beat yourself up. Know that God forgives you. And the Bible says if you crown and confess your sins, God is faithful and just and forgives you. That's beautiful. The book is called Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. So definitely everybody go to Amazon, pre-order the book. You can go to Sean's website. Sean, where can people find you online? Um, I'm on TikTok. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I have a YouTube channel. I am all over social media. Uh, I guess probably the simplest place would just be my website, seanmcdowell.org, has links to all the different channels. Um, that would be the place to start. One thing uh, for your viewers might be interested is I had a chance to to kind of motivate people to pre-order the book. I try to think of something that would interest people. So I went back to the three most influential speakers over the past 40 or 50 years on sexual purity and interviewed them. So I have an interview of my father who started the Why Wait campaign in the 80s. I interviewed Richard Ross who did uh, the True Love Waits campaign, and then James Dobson focused on the family. And I asked them some of the tough questions about purity culture and just lessons they've learned over the decade and how this conversation has changed. It was so rich. So if people pre-order it, we will send them all three of those interviews uh, that I think they'll find pretty valuable and helpful. And actually the site for that might be helpful if people want to know the where you just literally send in a screenshot. It's bhpublishinggroup.com forward slash chasing love. So it's bhpublishinggroup.com forward slash chasing love. And if you just screenshot, pre-order, send it in, we'll send you all three of those interviews. Oh, that's great. So everybody make sure you do that. Pre-order the book, get your bonuses. Sean, thanks so much for being on the show. It's always a pleasure. Elisa, you're doing a great job. Super proud of you. Keep Thank it up. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed listening to or watching this podcast, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button, or you can subscribe on YouTube or iTunes or wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash alisachilders and take a look at some of the ways that you can come alongside us financially and with your prayers to help get the message out to more people. Have a great week.